This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a thrilling cyberpunk story of gangs, guns, greed, and the power of independent trucking set in 22nd century Boston. I am your host and narrator, Chang Terhune. Now join me, please, as we enter the strange world of tribal malfunctions. Thank you all, and welcome to episode 16 of Tribal Malfunctions, a cyberpunk novel set in, um, one, two, three, 22nd century Boston, <laughs> uh, written, composed, narrated, sound effects, and mistakes by me, Chang Terhun, the author. Hope you're enjoying it. Uh, so yes, we're up to episode 16, and a couple things in here. As always, they're swearing, because in the future, people cuss. But um, in this episode in particular, too, there's um, there's some sexy stuff going on. Um, and uh, if you're familiar with my Twitter handle, you know that I like writing sex scenes just about as much as I like Lenny Kravitz, which is not at all. Um, well, it's not that I don't like writing them, it's just that I find... I'm sorry, my microphone's deciding to crap out of me. There we go. Uh, it's just that I find writing sex scenes rather um, uh, difficult. Maybe it's because I'm immature. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. But uh, I just, you know, they all just make me go, like, yeah, yeah, oh my God, he's touching. <laughs> Do they show it? Can you see it? <laughs> okay, so I just, you know, I'm weird about it. Um, but I'm weird in general. You may have guessed that now from uh, listening to... Um, the podcast so far but anyway there is a scene in here so definitely you know as always don't play it around children don't play it around the impressionable don't play it around the easily uh objectionable or people who get upset easily um you know and i'm probably making more out of it than it is but you know just don't just don't so anyway um lots of things happening if you're starting now jesus why chapter 16 episode 16 go back to the beginning you got time it's a podcast you know make time for it um as always i'm digging it throwing lots of my music in there and um throwing new stuff out i say it at the end but i'll say it now all the music is me i'm gonna start putting some new people's music some other people's musics in here um in the future so listen up for that but right now it's all me cathode ray tube uh, and or the dubtologist and maybe britney sparse too but um you can find all the music on my website charles arthur hewn and also my record label c and d h m n my Bandcamp page and um yeah check it out i also got loads of music elsewhere on the website there's my discography but anyway chapter 16 is underway so let's kick it Travelog 16, Signs and Sigils. Do you feel like you're undervalued in your current job? Concerned that some past incidents and indiscretions might be costing you an income you want and deserve? Ever wonder what life might be like working for one of your government's agencies? Do you think you have what it takes? Or do you think your past may prevent you from joining up? Well, you might be surprised at the kind of people hard at work in many of the United States government agencies. No, there's no hardened criminals or Class A felons, just a lot of good people from a wide variety of pasts who want to put their talents to good use. People who want to make a difference. People like you. So if you're interested in keeping your fellow Americans safe and free, call, email, or log in to the American Service Agency website and take our simple three-minute test. 
If you meet our standards, you may qualify for a position in investigations, drug enforcement, or inspection services. If you exceed our standards, well, we just may call you right after you finish the test. So try us out today. It's free, easy, and if you want, it's anonymous. But we don't judge, because we're America's service agencies, and we want you. ASA Commercial for Online Placement Testing Profiling Initiative, January 2100. Chapter 16, Denials Breed Reprisals. Late Saturday morning while showering, Aris was watching the news when a blurb caught his attention. He waved at the ticker and it expanded a hollow screen wavering in the steam. He rewound it, then turned off the water to listen. Reports of a meteorite crashing in the hole last night turned out to be nothing more than a little space junk, said Julia Nelson, the Saturday correspondent on WGKN. Residents of nearby Marshfield, Hingham, and Nantasket all reported seeing a bright object streak across the sky before landing somewhere on the whole peninsula where the mine farm facility is located. Witnesses said they saw a fireball landing on the mine farm property. Emergency vehicles rushed to the site and remained for several hours while mine farm handled the situation with their own crews. A mine farm spokesman said the object was nothing more than a derelict satellite that escaped the 2089 orbital cleanup and had nothing to do with last night's subsequent lockdown or the leaked whistleblower footage from the facility. Now here's Kevin with an update on the Bruins. Kevin? Aris muted the TV and shivered as he turned the water on again. A minute later, he searched for other mine farm news and clicked the first item that came up. Mine farm spokesman Oliver Miller says footage purportedly taken at the facility and leaked to the media shows nothing inappropriate and charges of human rights violations are baseless, politically motivated, and fueled by mine farm's competitors. A few seconds of shaky footage showed the mine farm complex that night. Aras thought it was from one of the heavy boys' shade camera feeds. The rows and rows of creches gleamed in the pixelated images. A body inside an open crash was visible for a few seconds, though the numbers and name were digitally blurred out. GKN received this exclusive footage early this morning and ran it after verifying its authenticity. Though rough and grainy, it clearly shows the factory conditions of Mine Farm's massive facility, dubbed the kind of place you can take your mind off things and put it to work for good. U.S. authorities have sent an investigative team to the Mine Farm complex after receiving similar footage from an anonymous source. Holy shit, Aris said aloud. The door opened and Manea poked her head in. Aris startled and nearly slipped in the tub before turning the TV off. Good morning, Jumpy, she said. You okay? Yeah, said Aris. You just scared me is all. Yeah, she said. You look like you forgot something. Aris looked in the mirror to see he was still covered in soap. Yeah, he said. I just spaced out watching the news. Well, she said, wiggling her eyebrows. Need me to loofah your back? Uh, 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 Aris stammered. Where are the kids? Just kidding, said Manan. Sorry. I was just going to tell you we're going out shopping with my mom. Back in a couple of hours. Why not just pump something out of the faker, said Aris. I need to get these damn kids out of the house, she said. I may kill them before the trip if I don't. Okay, said Aris, laughing. See you later, she said, and closed the door. Aris turned the water on and finished his shower. By six o'clock that night, the news was dominated by Mind Farm, and it was all Yuki's doing. See GKN today? She said when he answered her call. Watching it right now, he said. He sat in his lounger with a beer and a lukewarm bowl of noodles in his lap. Mine Farm's having a shitty weekend, huh? Proud to say you had a hand in that, said Yuki. I wouldn't, said Aris. You sure this won't blow back on us? Yep, said Yuki. I masked that file's route so it looks like it got sent from the weight sensor of a garbage can outside of GKN headquarters. No one's going to have the patience or time to trace it out. I guarantee that. What about the video itself, said Aris. What about it, said Yuki. What if they trace it back to us, said Aris. Trace it to the shades or maybe figure out who someone else is in the video. You think I didn't think of that, said Yuki. <laughs> Please. 
It's only about a minute cobbled together from all the shade cams. No one's faces are visible. None of the creche's markings are clear. I even made sure no one could identify your clothes. What about the metadata, said Aris. None there, said Yuki. Wiped everything but date and time. Shit, said Aris. Then they can track us from... Uh, you're supposed to be the B&E expert, said Yuki. Jesus, they already know the date and time of the break-in. Nothing they can really get from that. Yeah, but Aris stopped, corralling his thoughts into a coherent stream. I'm just a little concerned. Well, considering what else I packed in with the footage, I doubt Mind Farm is coming after anyone, said Yuki. Quite the opposite, in fact. What do you mean, said Aris, swigging from his beer? Well, GKN and local stations got video footage, said Yuki. Homeland Services got that, plus a big, fat data package. Whoa, said Aris. All the stuff you pulled off their networks? And then some, said Yuki. Just about the only thing I didn't give them was my cloned workstation. But they've got more than enough to go after Mind Farm for a whole shit ton of charges. Human rights abuses, cruelty, torture, you name it. Shit, said Aris. They're fucked. Maybe, said Yuki. But they're going to have a rough couple of weeks at least. Who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe we have hastened the end of Mind Farm. Really, said Aris. Really, said Yuki. Gonna be a field day for politicians. Groben Glaxon, the company that operates the chempens in the harbor and elsewhere, are already building more. Because I bet you they're shutting down Mind Farm soon. Seriously? said Aris. Probably, said Yuki. What the videos show is bad. Really bad. Gonna take a mountain of PR work to overcome that, trust me. The heavy boys will be happy about that, said Aris. A lot of boys coming home. Yeah, maybe, maybe not, said Yuki. From what I can see on Mind Farm's intranet, the executives are planning to turn out the whole-bodied people and work out a deal to keep the amputees on. Otherwise, they might die. Jesus, said Aris. That's disgusting. Speaking of which, said Yuki, any word on your boys? Nope, said Aris, and I'm okay with that. No one's talking until we're sure everything's calmed down. Again, I doubt anyone from Mind Farm is coming after you, she said. They do, and the ACLU is going to jump on that defense so fast that Mind Farm will be fucked. No, they're going to sit tight and lose this battle, which may also be the war. We'll see. What about the other thing, said Aris? Which? Said Yuki. Your parents, said Aris. Not sure, she said, a little quieter. They got moved. Not sure where. Trying to find a secret memo or a document about it. One thing's for sure. Cho is not happy. No surprise, said Aris. Oh, yeah, said Yuki. He showed up at about 6 a.m. screaming at me. Had to sick Terry on him. Told him I didn't know anything about it. He was all hopped up on KK, so he was easily distracted. I'm more locked down than ever, but they have to keep me alive or else they're fucked. He say anything about your parents, said Aris. Oh, yeah, said Yuki. Plenty. The usual shit. I just tune it out now. He's a bastard. I hope I get a chance to kill him myself. If not, I want you to do it. Not sure if murder is my bag, said Aris. Especially if your parents are at risk. Trust me, said Yuki. The moment you get a clean shot at him is the moment my parents are free and clear of him. There was a loud crashing noise on her end of the line, then a high animal screeching. Fuck, she said. He's back. Drunk and high. I gotta go deal with this. Later. Yuki hung up. He kept watching the news and fell asleep in his chair, waking when his children pounced on him, snow on their boots and in their hands. Aras howled as they stuffed it down his shirt, then laughed and tussled with them. He spent the rest of the night with his family, making himself watch their every movement so closely so he'd never forget a single second of this time. Two weeks later, on a bright Saturday morning, Ara stood in the International Departures Terminal of Logan Air and Spaceport, saying goodbye to his family. Five-story glass windows let in bright morning sunlight as he stood at them, watching suborbital jets take off and land from runways across the marshy flats. You're going up in one of those, Danny, 
Artis said, holding his son up to see the planes in their arc across the sky. It's going to take you up, up, up into space for just a minute. Then you come down and whoosh, you're in Yerevan. Danny's nervous meant allowing his father to hold him closer than usual. I wish, he said. What's that? said Artis. I wish you were coming with us, said Danny, then turned away in shyness. Oh, I wish I could, said Ars. But Daddy has to run the garage. Things will go crazy there if I don't, my man. With Mommy gone and Uncle Wendell on vacation, I have to run the place all by myself. I still wish you could come, said Danny, undeterred. I know, said Ars. I do too. But you will have such a good time, especially because you're going as king of the house. I am, said Danny. Aris looked at Manea, who nodded. Naren saw her father and brother, then held her arms out to be picked up as well. Aris groaned as he took both his children in his arms. Yes, Danny, you get to be king of our house since I'm not there. You're the ruler, right, Grandma? Yes, child, said Mrs. A. You're the Gechervartan. She gave Aris a look that he ignored. So you get to be king and eat all sorts of food and cakes and desserts and everyone is just going to go crazy over you. What about me, said Narin? Do I get to be queen? Nope, said Aris. Narin pouted. You get to be a princess. Her face lit up. I do? Really? Yes, said Aris. You do. You get all of the stuff the king does. And pretty dresses. Narin smiled, her eyes wide. She was nothing like her mother, who knew her way around a hauler's maglev assembly almost as well as any mechanic at Holy Roller. Narin's dominant girly jean perplexed Manea with its need for pink, princesses, and dainty clothes, but she accommodated it. That's us, said Manea, hearing the boarding call. Hug daddy goodbye, kids. The children choked Aris fiercely until he pretended to stumble. He let them down, and their grandmother took their hands so they could wait in line with her. She gave Aris a final look as Aris blew her a kiss. Manea took his hand and led him over to a nearby newsstand that sold candy as well as new and vintage print magazines. Without a word, she drew him to an aisle behind the counter where no one could see them unless they followed them in. Manea smiled and slid up to him, wrapping her arms around his waist. Sure you're okay with us leaving you all alone, she said. Now I really want you gone already, he said. Manea frowned. Yes, I'll be fine. I'm going to miss the hell out of you guys. You better. Manea kissed him, pressing her hips into his. No parties while I'm gone. Mm, that reminds me, said Aris. I've got a girl coming over at two. Aris, she mock hissed, smacking the small of his back with her hand. You bastard. Fourteen years together, and you think I'm going to step out on you now, he said nose to her forehead. This is the first time we've been apart and you think I'm gonna go ape wild and just be rolling in puss? Don't say it, Manea groaned. Aris laughed. What with you and Wendell gone, I'm gonna be so busy I'll have to sleep in the garage anyway. Manea's face clouded. What? asked Aris. What did I say? She looked over at the line where her mother waited with the children, then back at Aris. Aris, look. I know something's up, she said. His gut clenched while the smile on her face confused him. What? he said too loud. You think I'm fooling? Shh, she said, putting a finger to his lips. Manea looked back at her mother, then up at Aris. You were being really weird a couple months back, and I let it pass. But I know you, Aristotle Aguilar. I know you better than anyone else. But I... Uh, I... Aris's words caught in his throat. I, I, I'm not... Oh, I know you're not messing around, she said. Her hand slipped from his waist to his pocket, winding in and around until she cradled his cock and balls in her hand. Aris's eyes widened as he glanced back at his mother-in-law and children, oblivious and caught up in the excitement of boarding their plane. I know you're my man, and I know you're true. Jesus, Manea, he said, despite the fear he got hard in her grasp. What are you... But I know you're up to something, she said. You think Daddy never got into trouble sometimes? What? He coughed the word out. What do you mean? Think the garage was run by a funny old Armenian guy with a heart of gold, she said, then shook her head. 
oh, my daddy was a good man, but he got into some shady stuff once in a while. Nearly lost the garage to Mayhos and a couple other hoods. What the fuck, said Aris. She shushed him and gripped him harder. Menea, it's kind of weird to... Only way he kept it all from falling apart was by bringing in a couple Guyaga Khan from the village back home, she said. You think he liked Mayhos? Oh, hell no. He hated him. That shit-talking they did was to keep from punching the shit out of each other. But it took Adam and Chorus coming over to set things right. You remember them, right? Came here about 12 years back. Stayed at the apartment behind the garage. Aris found recollecting difficult with his wife's hand rubbing the head of his cock. There were those two dark men hanging around in work clothes all the time, smoking incessantly and lingering in the garage long after everyone else. They were there for a few months, then one day they were gone and nothing more was said about them. Yeah, I remember them, said Aris. They did some work Papa couldn't do himself, Menea said, staring into Aris's eyes. When Papa got in too deep, way beyond what he could handle. And my Papa knew how to handle himself. It earned my father Mejo's respect and got him off his back for good. Uh, it's kind of weird talking about your dad when you're, uh... So what I want to know is this, Aris. Manea ignored him and kept her hand working slowly on his cock. He was glad he'd worn dark pants as usual, but didn't think he'd come right here in the airport anyway. Are you in any kind of trouble I need to worry about? Because I see you and Wendell together a lot all of a sudden. I mean, Daddy knew all about you and Wendell's past, after all. What? said Horace. Why are you asking me this now? Why are you telling me... Because I'm about to go to the other side of the world, and my husband has been acting squirrely, she said. Aris tried to speak, but she gently shushed him and squeezed. No, no, it's okay. I'm not going to bust you. But I know you were poking around that hauler, and there was something fishy about it. You get extra weird when it rolls in. Then you came back an absolute wreck from New York after your mother died. I knew something else was going on. Look, I... Aris, a woman can tell. Shit, a wife can tell. Aris sighed, still holding his wife close, but barely able to look in her eyes. Aris, I remember that day 15 years ago when you came into the shop after a weekend of God knows what, she said. And I saw you. No, I really saw you. Someone as broken as anyone could be, yet still come to work. You were barely functioning those days. And I put two and two together after seeing the news about that brawl down where you used to live. Oh, so you wait until now to... She squeezed again and continued. I didn't think I needed to harass you about it, she said, curling her hand slightly. Heck, I was shy around you because I wanted to jump your bones. But that day you just looked like you needed someone to be nice to you. Like you needed a good home and someone to make a family with. Which you did. And you got that, right? We made that family, said Aris. You and I. Yeah, we sure did, Manea replied. And I love it, and I love you. And I don't want anything to happen to it. Me neither, said Aris. As she kissed him, he nearly burst into tears. Manea drew away and smiled. So I need to ask you, are we in trouble? She paused, searching his eyes before continuing. Do I need to be concerned about you? About the garage? Is something bad going to happen while I'm gone? I... Aris croaked, then stopped. I, I don't think so, but that but is what has me worried, see? She said. Because my intuition is telling me something's going on, and you're acting a lot like Daddy did just before the boys from Bayorgevan had to come over. I just... Aris stopped and started again. I've got people who can help. I've got it covered. Do you? Manea said. Do you really? Because I bet back in the old days you were a good little gangster, but there's a lot more at stake now, isn't there? The garage and the family. Other things too, I bet. Yeah, Aura said finally, withering under her patient gaze. There is some other stuff. Okay then, she said. Manea worked his cock a little more, causing Aura's breath to hitch. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get on that plane with our children and my mother, and I'm going to enjoy my vacation. Uh, okay. 
And you're going to promise me that you're going to get this thing you're involved with taken care of, said Manea. And I mean taken care of. Done. Finished and complete. Because when I come back, I want you all to myself, and not worrying about visiting you in jail before they ship you off to that mine farm or some shitty chempen. Understand? Yes, said Aris. She squeezed him again, too hard. Yes, it'll all be done. Good, said Menea, releasing him a little. When we land in Yerevan, I'm going to make a call to Adam and... No, said Aris. I don't need them or... My love, said Menea, squeezing again. All you have to do is call me and say you miss the old country. They'll be there the next day. Okay? Okay, Aris said after a long pause. Because what you're into, these men have seen it, and worse. And when I get back, it's back to your quiet life, your obnoxious wife, and your big old smelly garage, okay? Yes, he said. She rubbed the head of his cock again, grazing it with the pad of her thumb. Yes, dear. Okay, then, she said. She kissed him and held him close with one arm wrapped around him. As she finally let him go, she slipped her hand from his pocket. His cock ached, and he was glad his baggy pants hid most of his erection. Just make sure you eat some real food once in a while, she said, patting his backside. Don't eat from the faker all the time, and don't go to the paddock every day either. A guy can't have any fun while you're gone, can he, said Aris. I'm all the fun you need to be having, said Manea. Sure you can't come next week? And leave the garage to run itself, said Aris. Why not just close it down? Not yet, said Manea. Ten more years, maybe. Hey, when does Wendell get back anyway? Don't know, said Aris. Depends on how Menachem's mother is doing. How old is she again? Said Manea. A hundred and six, said Aris. Manea rolled her eyes. I know, right? Hope your mother doesn't live that long. Aristotle, said Manea. You know she loves you in her own way. Those boys I mentioned are from her side of the family, incidentally. Loves me, Jesus, in her own hating way, said Aris. He saw his mother-in-law looking for them. Speak of the devil, she's searching for you. Menea stepped out from the newsstand and said something to her mother in Armenian. The woman shrugged and turned back to her grandchildren. Aris and Menea walked back towards them hand in hand. Remember what I said, said Menea. About the old country? I will, said Aris. Menea stood up on her toes and gave him a good long kiss. You owe me, so you better bring some weird Armenian sex tricks back with you, he said. Not nice to leave me hanging high and dry. She raised an eyebrow. Think I didn't know what I was doing, said Menea. Mother thinks we have too much sex anyway. As if, said Aris. Is there such a thing? Maybe we need to find her a nice old Armenian tiger from Watertown or Belmont to fill her tank. Or some boys from Burgavan or wherever it is. Someone to keep her tank filled. It's Bayorgavan. They're her cousins. And you're disgusting, she said, laughing and kissed him again. Safe travels, my love, said Aris, releasing his wife's hand. She joined her mother and the children in the line as it moved along. After one last wave and shouted goodbye, they disappeared from sight. Aris waited until the sub-O jet he thought was theirs took off, its fat engines propelling the swollen fuselage into the sky. He turned and walked to the subway. following Monday, Wendell strode into the Holy Roller office at 8.57 a.m., just as Aris had learned Officer Kosal was dead. "'Miss me?' said Wendell. Aris shushed him and pointed to the screen. "'Nice welcome,' said Wendell. He dropped a parcel on Aris' desk and stood behind him. Together, they watched footage of a crime scene at night bathed in glowing light gantries and flashing police lights. Holographic police barriers and yellow tape fluttered around an MPPD cruiser, riddled with bullet holes mashed up against another vehicle. Aris turned up the sound. Someone killed an MBPD police officer early this morning during a shootout with gang members, said the female broadcaster. 
MBPD spokesman Lieutenant Thomas Mason said Officer Casal Chorn was responding to a call about an illegal party taking place in a warehouse in Hingham. Officer Chorn was first on scene and came under immediate fire by gang members. Once other officers arrived, gang members fled and officers declined to pursue, choosing instead to help their fallen comrade. Officer Chorn was pronounced dead at the scene by EMTs. A corpse covered in a blood-spattered dark blue MBPD sheet and stretched out on a gurney floated past the crowd of citizens and stricken, angry-looking police officers, their faces strobed by the lights. Officers shot two suspects in a nearby building, but the others escaped. MBPD and state police are engaged in a massive search throughout the South Shore area between Quincy and Marshfield. MBPD Chief Bill Colossi had this to say. The cut from broadcaster to the police chief was sudden and choppy. Colossi, a black man in his late 50s, stammered as he spoke. We promise that those who escaped this morning will not remain at large for much more of this day. He stopped and took care while wiping tears from his eyes. Behind him stood several stony-faced officers in a variety of different uniforms. Aris leaned forward, looking at one in particular. I am pleased, however, to report that the Massachusetts State Police have made a generous offer of complete and total access to their resources, said Colossi. No one can remain at large when an officer is cut down in the light of duty. No one. The large man Aris saw at the cop bar with Casal, weeks before, loomed behind the chief. Doyen, Aris thought. Doyen leaned over to the officer next to him to whisper something inaudible. The two men smiled briefly, then resumed somber expressions. I would like Lieutenant Brian Doyen of the state police to speak now, said Colossi. He stepped back and held an arm out to Doyen. The massive man, his implants sparkling under the camera lights, strode up to the smaller chief. Colossi's hand was engulfed as Doyen embraced the smaller man, smothering him in the light blue of his shirt and black tie. Colossi struggled for a second before he recovered and warmly embraced the large man. Once released, Colossi adjusted his tie and jacket, then moved to the back row. At the podium, Doyen clumsily adjusted the microphone before giving up and bending down to speak into it. I'd, uh, I'd like to commend Chief Colossi for his bravery during this difficult time, said Doyen. I know what it's like to lose an officer on my watch. The pain and shame of it is great, but the only thing greater than that is the resolve of the rest of the force to bring those responsible to justice. With our combined efforts, I believe we can achieve that swiftly. From this point, we can begin to create a permanent solution to what has become a rampant problem in the great city of Boston with these outlaw gangs waging war while our citizens are just trying to live their lives. The rest of Doyen's speech was muted as the broadcaster spoke, though his face remained on screen, mouth moving and face growing more and more emphatic. Chief Doyen outlined his plan for integrating the forces of the MBPD into that of the state police in a temporary working team to combat the city's gang problem. Critics of Mayor Ransom and Chief Doyen opposed this consolidation of power, citing it as a step towards an authoritarian state. For more, we head to Beacon Hill, where Andrea Morton has... Aris cut the sound, then turned to Wendell. And welcome back, he said. Wendell shook his head emphatically and pointed at the screen. No way K or BK was in on that, he said. No way heavy boys were either, said Aris. On screen, a black-haired woman in a red coat spoke while the state house's golden dome gleamed behind her. Damn, Casal was a good dude. But that's a whole lot of fuss over one cop, though. You think? said Wendell, sitting in Minet's seat. I know he was your friend and all, but doing this for one dead cop is kinda overkill. Besides, he was way out of his jurisdiction. Aris pondered this for a moment. I think he's got family down that way, maybe? But to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something else, said Aris. From what Casal told me, they were planning this, probably looking for a way to do it. After Mine Farm, it gave him the excuse. No coincidence it happened so soon after that, you know? Wendell nodded. How was your vacation, said Aris. Wendell shrugged. Nice to get away, he said. Hard to relax, though. Stopped looking over my shoulder after the twelfth day. Menachem was ready to kill me himself, but no one ever came for me. Good, said Aris. 
What's the word from your people? Brothers down in Miami, said Wendell, laying low. Until he can get revenge, said Ernest. Wendell nodded. The barons have been hiding out too, said Wendell. Nothing since he got out. No word from the all-base either, said Aris. I'm waiting, but damn, are they making me anxious. Chances are this will keep them underground for a while longer, said Wendell. They want to make a move, but not if it means the cops will shoot him with only one foot out the door. True, said Aris. He looked at the parcel Wendell dropped off and shook it. What's this? Pastries, said Wendell. Menachem's mother made them. Dates and stuff. Once she got better, she was a cooking fool. Demanded I take some back here to everyone I knew. They look good, said Aris, opening the package. They are, so eat up. Don't want Menea saying I let you go starving while she was gone, said Wendell, rising. I gotta lose some of that vacation weight myself. Wendell left with a clap of his hand on Aris' shoulder. Aris took one of the pastries out and took a bite. The rest of the day was tedious and boring. Without Menea, Aris sat in the office and, despite his best efforts, finished off the box of pastries by noon. He had someone bring him in a lunch from Izzy's, which he ate at his desk, occasionally checking the news. At around 4 p.m., he received an anonymous text. Don't believe the hype, it read. HB and K or BK not working together. Not responsible party, either. Cops set up other dead cop. Big ploy for control. Tiny Town wants to meet. Says he finally got your birthday gifts. A second text arrived with a Brooktown address and 8 p.m. meeting time. Ara spent the rest of the day pushing papers from one side of his desk to the other. That night, Aris took the garage's junker car they normally used for parts and supply runs and headed south on I-93. He wound his way through a series of smaller and smaller state routes until he found himself in a dark and desolate part of the dark and desolate landscape that comprised Brooktown, Massachusetts. Whatever economic recovery once graced the rest of Massachusetts passed over Brooktown as if a vindictive and angry god had marked it. How it managed to survive so long with so little was a miracle, not just to Aris, but to most Massachusetts residents, except the residents of Brooktown. They fiercely clung to its ragged, hard-scrabble past, with its legendary fighters and hockey players, its uncertain present and vague future, with a grim, pockmarked stoicism that the Puritan founders of the Bay Colony would consider overly fanatical. The route Tiny Town gave Aris took him through blocks and blocks of neighborhoods composed of burnt-out and abandoned buildings, ranging in style from ancient Victorians to contemporary apartment towers, each covered in more gang tags and insignia than he'd seen in his entire life. In Boston, most tags were inconspicuous and subtle, indicating to those who knew how to look for them, who controlled what neighborhoods and when. Brooktown communicated territorial alliances with epic graffiti murals and friezes, depicting the ever-changing and violent political landscape in Brooktown's gang war battlefields. Aris drove past proclamations of the power and dominance of Stretch Mighty, the Bleeding League, and all Saints of Doom, which were covered over by one another and more in a lurid layering worthy of an archaeological dig. Despite the building's condition, every street he drove on was full of wary, shabby people eyeing him with unalloyed, contemptuous paranoia as he passed by. How they could tell he was an outsider in a bland, beat-up car with Massachusetts plates was a mystery, but they pegged him as an infidel the moment he broke the city lines. What they were even doing outside on a bitterly cold March night was as big a curiosity as where they lived in a city made up of what seemed to be endless warrens of ruined buildings. He arrived at his destination, despite considering turning back home several times. A stark metal warehouse flanked by shuttered warehouses at the end of a bleak street, all lost to fire and decay. Six men and women guarded 61 Farwell Road's entrance, little more than children, each toting peculiarly shiny new rifles. They watched Aris' approaching car with an even greater wariness than those he encountered on his way in. 
When his headlights washed over them, they grabbed their rifles reflexively, holding them low and ready. A boy jumped down from the dumpster he was perched on and held up a hand while pointing his rifle at Aris. When Aris stopped, the boy ambled up to the driver's side and tapped the window hard with the end of the barrel. Pretty sure you're lost, beige. He was hardly 18 and of a diverse racial mixture common to the state's old industrial town. His gene map would show strands from Bangladesh to Barcelona all the way around to Beijing and back again. Better turn this shit heap around before I remember how bored I am. Look, I'm here to see a man about a suit, said Arnes. A suit, said the boy. He leaned against the doorframe and casually rested the rifle's muzzle against Arnes's neck. Ain't no fucking tailors, men's warehouses, or dry cleaners around here, beige man. Well, this guy Blindside told me to come down here and uh, see a specially priced suit, said Ars. Said he had a warehouse full of them right here at 61 Farwell Road. All right, that's it. He pressed the muscle harder into Aris's jugular. I think I might shoot you. And but my friends here who can strip your car down before your body gets cold. What do you think of the odds on that, my man? Hmm? I think that Aris was about to reach for the pistol he'd stashed under the seat when someone shouted from inside the warehouse. The language might have been the polyglot tongue spoken almost exclusively in Brooktown's hovels to confuse the local cops. Aris didn't understand what was said, nor when the boy answered angrily. The conversation went back and forth for a bit, until finally the boy backed off. Your lucky day, he said, waving Aris towards the garage with the rifle. Go on in, beige man. Sorry, kid. Better luck next time, said Aris, as he drove the car into an opening cut into the warehouse wall. Once inside, the makeshift door dropped shut behind him with a clang. Inside was dark but for his headlights. The floor was covered in broken cement, rebar, and metallic dust. Up ahead, Aris saw a small door open, revealing bright light and a figure in backlit shadow waving him to approach. When he pulled up closer, he recognized the man. Nice beater, said Blindside, leaning on a shiny black cane. Sorry for the hassle out there. No problem, said Aris. The whole town always like this? What do you mean, said Blindside. Everybody angry, eyeing me, looking at me like I'm a... A cop? laughed Blindside. Yeah, it's terrible right now. Cops are fucking shit up everywhere. They're really edgy after what went down in Hingham. But it won't change nothing. Just gives people an excuse to settle old beefs. So when the cops rattled stuff up here, they restarted a battle between the left side gang and the Teflon Wands. Funny name, said Aris, slamming the door shut. You think? Tell them that and they'll pull your tongue out through a slit in your throat and then strangle you with it, said Blindside. Come on already, we both got shit to do. Aris followed Blindside down a dank, rust-smelling hallway lit by naked bulbs strung along the sides. Blindside turned a corner and Aris followed, watching his friend hobble down the stairs. What happened to your leg? asked Aris. Something about my revival went wrong, Blindside yelled over his shoulder. Nerve damage or something. You see a doctor about it? And get fucking pinched, said Blindside. Have them bastards put me back in a goddamn crash? Nope, no thanks. Besides, I got this dope cane now. He smacked the cane twice against the wall. At the bottom of the stairs, they slung through a series of passages lined with less lights and more massive pipes. Finally, they stopped at a door blindside open first with a key, then a keypad combination, then a blood sample obtained by sticking his finger in a less than sanitary looking receptacle. Once that cleared, a green light flickered in the doorframe before it opened with a deep groan and muffled clinks. What the fuck is this, said Aris. Old bank vault? Kinda, said Blindside. Kept explosives in here or some shit. Dunno. But even though it's old, ain't no one getting through that door once it's locked. Once it opened fully, they went in. Aris stopped and gaped at the walls. It was lit much brighter than outside. Aris blinked as his eyes adjusted, seeing every wall was lined with heavy-duty shelves from floors to the 12-foot ceiling. A long table stretched from one end to the other, covered with a variety of things like weapons half-deconstructed, clothing, and an info deck. It was the contents of the shelves that amazed him. One wall was entirely military uniforms. Another was specialized outfits from armor to battle fatigues. 
Another yet was weapons and ammunitions. The wall on his right was covered in various equipment, medical supplies, rations, and a small but impressive collection of narcotics. Holy shit, said Oz. Tiny Town wasn't lying. You got mad loot here. Oh yeah, said Whiteside. Just before my father died, he gave me the key and an address. No shit. No idea this was all here. I mean, I was lifting a little shit when I'd go visit it, but this? Nah. Damn, said Oz. He was stealing it? Some of it. Blindside lifted a black garment on the table. A lot he collected when it was decommissioned. I lucked out, man. Damn right you did, said Oz, stepping in all the way. So where's this suit? Right here, said Blindside. He held slinky black fabric in his hand. Oz took it from him, feeling the flimsy and cool texture, like nylon, but with a slight metallic edge. That's the most recent tech I got. Yeah, said Oz. How's it work? Well, this is just the Under Armour. The main part is in here, said Blindside. He pointed to a metallic suitcase next to the fabric. This contains the armor, replacement patches, and master control. Blindside flipped open the lid of the case. Looking inside, Aris saw a collection of armored plates molded in the rough outlines of body parts packed in plastic foam cutouts. Among these were a small rectangular box and a few metal containers marked in Filipino lettering. You slip on the under armor, then all the plates, and you're good. Controls are on the left sleeve, plus some stuff on the chest panel. All syncs up to a standard set of shades. Those Moog 7s in your pocket will do fine. Heard you going down the worm way, is that right? Yeah, said Otis. Cool. Got a small tank up there you can use for air. You're gonna need it. Heard it's cold as hell down there. Suit's got heat, too. Under armor will protect you if the armor fails. For a little while, anyway. Aris examined the parts arrayed in the box. It's all in here, he said. Yep. Blindside showed him the small tanks and how to attach them to the suit. They were full of compressed gases, which allowed for longer suit time, but less weight. You need a gun, said Blindside. Wasn't planning on it, said Aris. Not sure if I'm going to need one. Oh, you'll need something, all right, said Blindside. He limped to the weapons wall, surveyed the arms there, then chose a small handgun. HK Jarajet 32. Works in vacuum. My cousin says the police on Luna and Europa use these when they got gambling problems with the miners. Aris looked it over. A small handgun with decent heft but not too much weight. Well balanced and comfortable in his hand. He hadn't handled one in a while and enjoyed the oddly thrilling but familiar feel. Here's a couple boxes of rounds. Doubt you'll need more than that. Yeah, this ain't more than a scouting mission, really, said Aris. He looked at the gun and laid it next to the armor. Got a rifle or a submachine gun? Something light that packs a kick? Do I? said Blindside. He stepped to the side a few feet, then took down a small rifle with a barrel just over a foot long. Kovari TK 11mm. Very nasty thing. Rounds are really expensive and kind of radioactive. Don't hold them too close to your balls or nothing. Not a problem, said Aris. He took the gun and held it, noting the light carry and solid trigger hold. The rounds are full of these weird pellets, said Blindside, handing Aris two cylinders with radioactive warning symbols on them. Heat up once you turn the gun on, but when you fire them, they absolutely fucking burn up. They're the size of buckshot and get super hot right out of a barrel. Range is about 100 meters or so. If it hits a person, it'll just cut through them like hot knife on butter. Anything else? Metal, supercrete, wood, diamond paint. It just bores through and stays there burning for a while. Saw a video where a guy firing these fucked up a tank back in the Eastern Union. Jammed up the works before it blew up the engine. Nasty, but cool. Great, said Aris. Doubt I'll use it, but... Oh, you gotta use it if you take it, bro, said Blindside, laughing. I'm counting on it. I want to hear how... The info deck bleeped harshly and Blindside limped over to it. Fuck, he said aloud. What, said Aris. Cops, said Blindside. Fucking aerial and ground support. Anyone follow you? Nope, said Aris. I took a long way and checked my mirror. No tails. Well, they're here now. Shit, boy, you gotta go. Now. They bundled the suit into its case and the weapons, breathing gear, and some other supplies into a black duffel bag. Aris caught sight of himself, holding them in the full-length mirror. Look like a fucking tourist, said Aris. How am I going to drive straight the fuck out of... Oh, you ain't driving nowhere, son, said Blindside. The cops are going to shoot anything on wheels, if it even gets past the roadblocks.
How the fuck am I supposed to get out then, said Aris. This way, you fucking whiny baby, said Whiteside. He shook his head and loafed to the door. Aris followed. Upstairs, they could hear distant shouts and the steady thrub, thrub, thrub of helicopter rotors. Blindside took him down a side hall on the right and stopped at a metal door. Go all the way to the end. After the chain gate, you're going to be in a tunnel. Follow that to a T-intersection. Got it? Take a left, then a right. Next T-intersection, go right, then left. Keep straight, and you'll end up in a storm drain across from Staunton train station. Catch a train back to Boston from there. With all this fucking shit, said Aris. You want to get a taxi? Ain't no motherfucking car going nowhere without being stopped and searched. Train's your safest bet. They ain't searching those. Rarely ever do. There was a loud bang above them and shouts escalated, turning into screams. Blindside clapped him on the back. Get going, motherfucker. I'ma lock myself in the vault until this blows over. You sure? said Ars. Oh yeah, said Blindside. Even if they could get in, they'd be fucking surprised by what I got in there. Now go! Arnest nodded and opened the door, then clumsily went in. Blindside slammed it and locked it behind him. Aris followed Blindside's directions, navigating the inky darkness with his Moke 7s, when he heard a massive bang behind him, followed by a prolonged rumble. He glanced back briefly, believed to see no smoke or fire. He kept moving, though soon the smell of smoke and a wave of concrete dust caught up with him. Aris hoped Blindside was safely holed up in his bunker. Eventually, he found himself crouching as he dragged the duffel and suitcase through a narrow drain pipe, splashing through a few inches of water. When he emerged from the pipe, it was drizzling and dark out. He carefully climbed the ditch's snowy banks to emerge across from the large parking lot of a train station. Aris crossed the deserted road, then the floodlit parking lot to the platform, where he sat in a deserted shelter to stare out across the tracks at the city on fire. A pair of policemen toting machine guns strode onto the platform towards him. As they drew closer, he saw there were Stoughton police, not state troopers or MVPD. One spoke into his helmet mic as they stopped at the shelter. Evening, sir, said one. The other eyed the fire on the horizon. Officers, said ours. He raised a hand from his jacket pocket to point at the glow in the sky. What's going on? A fire or something? It's a small civil disturbance, said the officer. You have ID, sir. Your details aren't on public road. Yes, officer, said Aris. He reached into his pocket slowly and switched his phone on. The officer viewed a hologram projected above his armor's suit panel. What brings you out this late, Mr. Aguilar, said the officer. Aris's details winked out of sight. I got stuck at a friend's house. A little too much to drink after my friend's kid's party. Thought I was going to spend the night, but those kids started throwing up and crying, and I thought, fuck, excuse me. Forget it. I'm out of here. So I walked from his house to get a train back home. Uh, you know when the next train is? No idea, said the cop. The other one turned his gaze on Aris, and they both stared at him. Where's your friend live? Over on uh, Schooner Road, said Aris. 41. I took a cab over there from the other platform and... Just a moment, sir, said the other cop. His headset squawked, and after a series of garbled sounds, they both nodded. Roger that, said the one who'd been talking to Aris. Keep him there until we arrive. On our way. He nodded at his partner, then looked back at Aris. Mr. Aguilar, it's kind of dangerous out right now. I'd suggest waiting inside the station. It's safer. There, you can check the schedule. I think it might be a while before a train comes, though. Thanks, officer, said Aris. I appreciate it. Night now. The officers marched back the way they came at a faster pace. When they were gone, Aris went into the station and waited for three hours until a train rolled in with a handful of passengers. Aris sat in the first car, cramming his luggage on the seat next to him. He laid a protective hand on it as he looked out the window. As the train departed, he breathed a sigh of relief. As Brooktown came into view, Aris winced. The train allowed for a long, arcing view of the city with at least three fires burning high and bright in the early morning sky. Emergency vehicles swarmed in the air along with several state police choppers. The few working streetlights made the scurrying figures in the road look like vermin. When Aris's phone buzzed, he answered it through the shades. A holograph of Tiny Town appeared before him. Yo. Tiny Town wore his heavy boy gear, which meant he must be someplace safe. You all right? Yeah, said Aris. You? Yeah, I'm good. Tiny Town coughed. You got the suit? Yeah, yeah, did that, said Aris. Had a rush out on account of some unexpected visitors. Right. 
said Tiny Tim. Saw that. Bad shit. Yeah, said Oris. You here from Blindside? He okay? That's what I'm saying, said Tiny Tim. He frowned. Bad news. What? said Oris. You got out just in time. He was talking, then boom. Nothing after that. Near as I can tell, they bombed the place flat. Oh, shit, said Oris. Yeah, locals got caught up in a war. Thought the cops should just fuck off. Tiny Town shook his head. Scan is popping with cop chatter. Says those state police copters dropped a couple slab busters on it. Level the neighborhood. Anyone alive is either in jail or running for their lives. You're lucky, future pop. Damn, said Oris. All that trouble to get him out of mine farm than this. Might not be the end, you know, said Tiny Town. Blindside's a tough motherfucker. Probably down there eating ribs and drinking beer, waiting for the fire to stop. When it's all done, he'll probably pop his head out of the ground like a rabbit. You see? Shit, I hope so, said Horace. Guess you got that soup, bro, said Tiny Town. You know how to use it? Yep, said Horace. Blindside told me. Gonna try it out at home a bit first. Learn to quit, said Tiny Town. Got a feeling Cho is gonna move on something soon. What makes you say that, said Horace? Don't know, said Tiny Town. Just feeling it. Keep an ear out. I'll call when we're ready. Got it, said Oris. The phone went dead. He stared out the window as the train picked up speed, rushing towards home. much there you go chapter 16 um and uh stuff's going down sorry i'm chewing on a piece of um obscenely salty yet addictive icelandic licorice sorry that's so gross to have to hear but hey um that's podcasting for you um wow so that was that episode pretty great I think a lot of uh, interesting action in there. Sexy stuff, too. Um, sorry if that, you know, um, whatever. It's in there. Wasn't that bad. Hope you dug it. Um, as always, the story is moving and moving forward. I'll, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, if you've read the print version of this, you would know that um, this is actually uh, only half of Chapter 16. And the reason for that is last uh, week's episode topped in at a mammoth, like, hour and a half. And that was a little bit too much for, um, uh, both for me to work on and uh, also to upload. So just going to make sure that we're keeping them in around an hour or so right now. That's just easiest to do. Okay? So, uh, still hope you dig it. Left it on a little cliffhanger. Who's no, who knows what's going on? Ours is heading down to the warm way. What the, what's happening? Crazy shit. It's all rolling down. Um... But anyway, that is chapter 16, uh, part one. Part two is going to be rolling out next week and the following week um, in next episode. And uh, I hope you dig it. Uh, I really appreciate you listening, and I really appreciate you um, taking a liking to my stories. All the music is me, Cathode Ray Tube. You can get that at my website, Charles R. Terhune, except for the unreleased stuff. Or um, you can get it at, um, what do you call it? CNDHMN www.cndhmn that is the website of my little record label production house I call uh, Condition Human alright thank you very much for listening this is Chang out